0: Tonight on Huckabee, Congressman Neal Dunn on constraining COVID-19. Governor David Beasley on how he survived the coronavirus. And music artist China Phillips Baldwin joins us. And now, here's Mike Huckabee.
1: Well, welcome to our third coronavirus edition of The Huckabee Show. And by the way, we're practicing safe social distancing by keeping our theater empty and our minimal crew and team safely separated. I'm actually operating from my remote studio 460 miles from our theater. And like you, we are all ready to be back to normal if there ever will be such a thing. But we also take the virus seriously and you should too. I've had friends and acquaintances who have been infected and know personally a few people who have died from it. Those who scoff at the seriousness of this need to think about this. Do you really think the NBA, Major League Baseball, NASCAR, the NCAA, the Masters, and other sports would shut down and lose billions of dollars if not for a real pandemic threat? Would entire nations impose absolute quarantines? And would major corporations close their doors? And would the president urge a virtual shutdown of our nation's economy during an election year if this weren't deadly serious? Oh, I know there are some conspiracy theorists who say that the scope of the danger is overblown, but few who say such things are public health experts. Perhaps we will find that there was an overabundance of caution and maybe some things could have been tempered. But in major cities like New York, Chicago, LA, Detroit, New Orleans, Miami, and yes, Nashville. The cases have multiplied from both a densely populated area with lots of tourists coming in and out, but also because many people just didn't take it seriously. Now, most churches in the nation have closed their on-campus services to conduct services online. A few kept open, but they took extraordinary measures to try and protect the attendees. One such church is the River at Tampa Bay Church. It required attendees to separate 6 to 10 feet from others. They supplied hand sanitizer at every door for every attendee. They spent $100,000 for a hospital-quality airflow system, and they had every staff member wearing gloves. But this week, Sheriff Chad Cronister of Hillsborough County, Florida, actually arrested the pastor, Pastor Rodney Howard Brown, because he conducted church services. Think about that a pastor got arrested for having a church service. Now, he didn't sneeze or cough on people. He didn't deny the virus was real and, in fact, took great precautions to maintain social distancing at the church. But he was arrested and taken to jail because he opened his church. Now, remember, nobody was forced to attend. The attendees arrived on their own, and one wonders why those who attended weren't arrested as well. This is gonna set up a colossal legal battle as to whether the government at any level can tell a church, synagogue, or mosque that it cannot provide religious services to its members. Now, my own church is doing services online and not on any of its five campuses. And personally, I think that's the prudent choice. If my church did have services at any of the locations, be honest with you, I'd opt to still be involved online Just to protect myself and more importantly, my family who's quarantined with me. But should the government actually arrest a pastor for having church? And if government can shut down a church now, when will some government decide that a church is dangerous because it believes what the government deems to be wrong? If a church who believes the biblical pattern of marriage of one man, one woman is considered discriminatory, is the pastor going to get arrested for that? If a church believes that Men and women ought to have separate restrooms and dressing rooms and gender separate dorms and showers at youth camp. Will the pastor be arrested in jail for not following what the government deems right? Matt Staver and our friends at Liberty Council are representing Pastor Brown, and we're going to follow this case very closely. But while I believe the risks to public safety and life are real from the coronavirus, I also believe that we cannot and we must not sacrifice our First Amendment guarantees of freedom of religion, free speech, and freedom to assemble. I urge you, protect your family during these times, but be equally vigilant that government doesn't become itself a deadly virus that will kill our liberties and turn us into a police state. This week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis issued a stay-at-home order that affects the entire state. This is Florida grapples with surging cases of the coronavirus, as well as pressure from some who say that the Sunshine State should have been closed for business even sooner to slow the spread of the virus. Joining us now is a member of Congress from the Panama City Beach area of the panhandle of the great state of Florida, who also happens to be a career medical doctor, Congressman Neil Dunn. Congressman, it's an honor to have you here. I want to begin with a medical question. Uh, you, you've you seen a lot of things in your medical practice. Anything like the coronavirus before ever?
2: You know, we, we dealt with some epidemic diseases when I was back in the army, a long time ago, uh, overseas. But uh, this is, this is a new, something new in America. We've really never experienced this.
1: There was criticism uh, toward the governor that some said he should have shut the whole state down sooner. Uh, what was your view on that? Because, I mean, you and I live in the panhandle of Florida, so we know it's very different than South Florida, Miami, and Fort right. Lauderdale. What was your view on that?
2: So, I actually don't think so. I mean, I think he did it, he reacted appropriately and in a timely fashion. Uh, you know, up here in North Florida, we don't have a lot of uh, coronavirus cases. Most of them that we do have came from somewhere else. So, we're checking patients from uh, hospitals in Georgia and Alabama that can't handle. Uh, they didn't have the level of acuity that some of our trauma centers did. But, uh, you know, we're pretty spread out up here in North Florida. And it's a really very, you know, it's, it is
1: not that urgent to, uh, for us to be isolated like in Miami or New York. Even in the panhandle, everything is shut down. Rental properties are ordered closed. Beaches are ordered closed. Basically, a pharmacy and a grocery store is about the only thing that, that's open. Uh, the question is your area more than any other that I can think of has been now hit with a double whammy. A little over a year ago, you had Hurricane yeah. Michael, uh, one of the roughest hurricanes of all time, Cat 5 hurricane, your district hardest hit in America from that, now the coronavirus. What kind of economic impact is it having on businesses and and individuals in your-
2: Well, so you're course? very right on that. This this is a double hit and, and the people here feel it. Uh, now they're good people, they're resilient people, they're helping each other but uh, you know no fooling you know, our businesses feel like they get clipped again and then again and uh it's uh it, it's a tough thing uh, i think we bounce back i think we're going to come back but uh you know you know how it is it's uh, those hurricanes take a few years to come back from you know
1: i, I think uh, a lot of people don't understand that the areas that are resort and tourist areas depend so much on the revenue of service personnel whether they're wait staff at restaurants people who service the hotels and the motels, major chains are down 95%, which is basically they're out of business at 95% loss of revenue. Um, The bill that you passed in Congress, and I know that was something that you worked on to try to get it done. How does it help those individual workers? Not so much the companies, the corporations. How does it help that guy who lost his job as a waiter at the restaurant or the housekeeper at the hotel.
2: So we put the money in that bill so that their employers would pay them, we'll keep them uh, because it's a, they're being paid by us. I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a, they're covered completely by us for at least eight weeks, uh, in some cases more than that. And, and we're hoping that that will incentivize the employers
1: to keep their employees. Boy, I really hope so. And I think all of America is right now cheering when they hear you say that and hoping it. Uh, One of the medical treatments that has been uh, at least tried out on a number of people, seemingly with great results, is the use of a malaria medicine. Been around the market for 70 years, a safe uh, medication. From your perspective as a medical doctor, not just as a congressman, would you take that drug for coronavirus? Would you prescribe that drug if you had patients who had coronavirus?
2: I would prescribe it. I have prescribed it. I I absolutely uh, would take it. It's uh, as you're. You and I are old enough to remember when chloroquine was a was a common drug. Uh, uh, As you say, it's been around seventy years, uh, and we don't use it much for malaria anymore because malaria has become resistant to it. But it turns out to work pretty well. It's not like an antibiotic and a uh, you know targeted antibiotic infection, but it does shorten the disease and it also makes it shallower. And uh, if you combine that with azithromycin, another common antibiotic
1: and inexpensive
2: drug. Uh, they, then the patients actually do quite well.
1: Final question, Congressman. Do you think uh, the House and the Senate will take up yet another uh, major relief bill before this is all over? Well, we're going to do some more. We, As
2: a minimum, we have some technical corrections we have to address. But uh, we, we're going to see what we did with this $2 trillion up front, see how that goes mm-hmm. before we go put another trillion dollars into the, into the kitty, I think, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a big slug of money, but it's what it takes to jumpstart this economy. And it's worth remembering, it's worth saying to everybody, America is the best place in the world to be right now with the coronavirus. I mean, here's where we're going to do the cures. Here's where we're going to do the vaccine. You know, here's where the resources are. And the great minds are innovating the uh, achievements for
1: this disease. So, uh, you know, I think we should luck. thank our lucky stars that we're, we're in America. You know, I, Congressman, I couldn't agree more. I think that... Uh being in America at the worst moment of our nation's history is still better than being almost anywhere else other than America. And thank you for reminding us of how God blessed we are to be in this great land. Delighted to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Governor. Appreciate you. Our thanks to Congressman Neal Dunn. You can follow his official Twitter account at fl 2 Also check out dunn.house.gov for all the latest news in his Florida congressional district. Well, our Keith Bilbrey doesn't have a virus, but he does have what's coming up on the show. Take it away, Keith. Well, tonight, Governor David Beasley's personal coronavirus story
0: and sand artist Joe Castillo, then celebrities and politics author Lauren White, plus pop singer China Phillips Baldwin. More heckabee is on the way.
1: As coronavirus sweeps the United States, Italy, Spain, and countless other countries, the developing world is also getting hurt by this pandemic. My guest tonight is a former governor of the state of South Carolina. He's currently the executive director for the UN World Food Program. Governor David Beasley is here with a personal story about getting the virus himself and how this is affecting millions of people that the World Food Program is already trying to help. I welcome my dear friend, Governor David Beasley, former governor of South Carolina. Governor, it is truly a delight to have you and more importantly, that you're getting better. I'm delighted to hear that.
3: Oh, Mike, uh, it's been an ordeal and it was three weeks ago that I came down with my first symptom and uh, I thought it was nothing but uh, allergy. I had just come home to our farm, our home in South Carolina for the first time in many, many months And, uh, you know, in the South, this time of year, you've got pollen from the pine trees. And I thought, well, it must be a little bit of that pollen that's getting in my chest and giving me a little bit of a fever. I had just been tested uh, twice over the last couple of weeks before that uh, to make sure, you know, I'm meeting with leaders all over the world. I want to make sure you're healthy. And of course, this was a month ago. As you can imagine, people weren't quite as worried at that point in time. And so- It was on a Friday afternoon that I started feeling that first symptom. And at the time, again, I thought it was just allergy. And Sunday, I went through Friday night. Saturday and Sunday, I had fever. I had aches and pains, but not severe. And Monday morning, I woke up. I was actually feeling pretty good. But to be extra careful, you know, people like me, you meet a lot of people. So I thought, I better go by and see the doctor, get checked and tested again, just to make sure I haven't picked it up in the past week. And uh, sure enough, test results came back, unfortunately, uh, positive. And now I've had five, six straight days of no fever, feeling so much better. But at my age, you know, you and I aren't young puppies like we used to be when we were governors. And (laughs) and I don't have quite that stamina. Thanks a lot. (laughs) But, But actually, I'm doing really, really great now, Mike.
1: Uh, You you live the life of a globetrotter, literally across every continent on earth, helping people to have food as director of the World Food Program. Uh, So it's not like you're sitting at home most of the time, you're traveling overseas, you're on airplanes, long flights. Um, Do you have any idea where you might have picked up the virus?
3: Uh, uh, I flew to the Middle East, Mm. was in UAE and Saudi Arabia, and I was tested twice over four days just to make sure I did not have it, and I was tested negative. And then I was down in Lebanon and Beirut and then Syria and then Jordan, then back to, uh, to UAE and was feeling great. And I don't think I picked it up there. Then I flew back to the United States where I thought I would be much safer. And somewhere, I think in that week, whether it was at the airport or maybe South Carolina or Canada, I picked it up and have literally no idea uh, from whom I may have picked
1: it up. I want to mention the fact that this uh, this is an impact, not just on you personally, but you mentioned before the World Food Program that you oversee as the executive director. And it was uh, by the recommendation of then UN uh, ambassador, Nikki Haley, uh, the president of the course signed off on it. So you're officially looking over this program. 89 to 90 million people a day depend on the food that is provided. Uh, Through voluntary contributions. This pandemic, though, can disrupt your capacity to get food. I'm not talking about because you're sick, but because the airline structure, the shipping structure. What an impact is it having on getting food to people who are in desperate condition right now?
3: Mike, you know, all you got to do is go to the local grocery store in your hometown. You realize the supply chains matter. And this is in what the most developed nation on Earth. And you can imagine what we will be facing in countries like in the continent of Africa. And not many people realize that we are the logistics hub uh, for emergency operations, whether it's on health issues like Ebola or here uh, with regards to uh, coronavirus. We just transported literally millions of test kits millions of face masks, millions of protective gear into the 54 countries just in Africa. We are also deploying it in another 25, 30 countries, uh, other protective gear with WHO, UNICEF and many other organizations. So we've got to keep our teams healthy. We've got to keep our teams operational because millions of people's lives are at stake in country by country by country.
1: we appreciate you're being here. We appreciate what you're doing across the globe. Uh, sorry you ended up with coronavirus, but very, very happy and uh, most grateful to God that you're on the mend and that uh, you'll be back out uh, doing the Lord's work across the globe. Governor David Beasley, well, thank you for joining us. It is a Mike, an honor to Thank have you. you.
3: With There's me. no greater challenge and purpose in life than to, than to help people around the world to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the number one command of the scripture and uh, I try to live it out every day. So Mike, thank you very much. God bless you.
1: And our thanks to Governor David Beasley, executive director for the UN World Food Program. You can follow the governor on Twitter at WFPChief, or you can visit WFP.org for the latest on what the aid program is doing all over the world. Well, our own Keith Bilbury has a serious case Of the coming ups. He's going to tell you all about what's coming up.
0: Next amazing sand artist Joe Castillo and political author Lauren Wright, plus platinum selling recording artist China Phillips Baldwin. That's all coming up on Huckabee. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter. And follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter.
1: And welcome back. We are so happy to have uh, the very safely separated Trey Corley in the Music City Connection bringing music to us even as we are all quarantined. Well, my next guest is an America's Got Talent finalist who's performed worldwide. He's performed in front of presidents and the Pope. He and his lovely wife traveled to Israel with me in years past, and I absolutely love his unique and creative art. Now, I'm not going to spoil what you're about to see. Just know that it's being created before your eyes using only a small table, a light, and a handful of sand. Now, here's the creative work of sand story performer, Joe Castillo. Joe, I always marvel at the sand creations that you do. How did you ever start into sand art? I mean, it's not something you see all the time.
4: No, it's rather unique art form. And about 15 years ago, I was pastoring a church and I wanted people to remember uh, the messages I was given. And so I wanted to include the arts and um, came back from the hardware store with a sack full of sand and some kitchen Uh, light fixtures and table legs, cobbled it together in my garage, and the images started coming together.
1: Now, do you do other kinds of art? Is sand sort of, I know it's your specialty, but are you a painter? Do you do other types of things?
4: I actually do, but of course, uh, my first career was in advertising. I did 20 years of that. And then I started doing a series of pen and ink drawings that um, I still have available on my website. I would draw them with a magic marker, and I called them magic marker talks. And uh, so they're pen and ink drawings <laughs> that have uh, done very, very well over the years, and that happened long before the sand story came along.
1: You uh, you became a finalist on America's Got Talent, and, and I have to believe that that was sort of unique and unusual to have a sand artist who mostly did gospel presentations ever make it to the finals of AGT. Uh, were you surprised in a way that your uh, your artwork was so popular with the
4: American public. I, I was. I, as a matter of fact, Governor, I'm still surprised almost every day. Uh, things have gone away now because of the uh, ban on large meetings. But um, I, I still, every time I perform, I'm, I'm amazed at how fascinated people are. And AGT was a unique experience because... Um, uh, I got a little pushback on some of the stories that I wanted to tell, but I think the message still got out
1: for you, it really is the message that you can convey. It's not just the art, but you always bring it home to uh, to a message that
4: gets people right in the heart. I mean, that's intentional, obviously, on your part. It is intentional. and of course, one of the challenges we're facing now is trying to figure out how to do this uh, digitally, how to do it virtually. And so I've set up here in my studio and um, have three cameras and can actually perform live for for groups and have started doing that. We'll see how well it goes but it's a it's a new experience and and um, like you were talking about with your trying to perform without an audience, it's very much the same when I'm here alone in my studio and just connected virtually on cameras to uh, to an audience that I don't ever see. But Joe. Love
1: having you here and uh, look forward to seeing you in person soon. Thank you for joining us. And I'm going to turn it over to Keith Bilbury, our wonderful announcer, because Keith, you know what? I think Joe is the real Sandman. I'm going to let you tell everybody where they can see more of Joe's incredible sand stories.
0: Well, as soon as we're back to having group events, you'll want to have Joe Castillo to yours. To reach him and see more of his inspiring artwork, visit sandstory.com. And look for Joe Castillo on Facebook, at Sand Story. Coming up, celebrity and politics author Lauren Wright and singer China Phillips Baldwin and her remarkable music career. More Huckabee is on the way.
1: The people of New York City have been the hardest hit by the coronavirus in the United States. Please join with the Samaritan's Purse team to help save lives. They're working with patients right in the middle of New York in Central Park, where they've set up a massive portable hospital. Those doctors and nurses are working tirelessly around the clock to help those infected by COVID-19. Why don't you call the number on your screen? You can also visit Samaritan's Purse website and do it right now. And be sure that no matter what you give, whether it's large or small, it really will make a difference during these very difficult times. Please give so that others may live. God bless you. Well, my next guest is a politics and public affairs academic at Princeton University. But you may know her as a popular TV news commentator. Her new book is called Star Power, American Democracy in the Age of the Celebrity Candidate. Dr. Lauren A. Wright, we are glad you're with us tonight to talk about your new book. Uh, Let's get into the idea of celebrities in politics. It's kind of a new phenomenon you talk about.
5: You know, it's actually been a part of U.S. history for longer than we think. And something I was really fascinated with was just the extent to which the founders talked about this. Hamilton and Madison all over the Federalist Papers talk about this puzzle that they were fascinated with, which is that celebrities are really um, extremely uh, talented on the campaign trail and they're very well suited to win elections, but they're poorly qualified to govern. So what do we do about this? And is it good or bad for democracy? That's kind of the question the book seeks to answer.
1: You know, uh, in the book Star Power, you discussed that sometimes people get into the political arena for the first time Uh, from a celebrity background, and they don't understand a lot about governing. Some people might argue that uh, some of the people who have been there forever, 30, 40 years in governing, they don't seem to know a lot about it either because they don't get much done. How do you respond to that?
5: I've certainly heard that argument, and it's a common one that, you know. This is a democracy and celebrities in some ways are an antidote to those big political machines that we had in the past and party controlled elections. But the problem is when celebrities get in and they don't listen to advisors and they don't adhere to some political norms, they have trouble getting things done. So it's not just that it's bad for government. It's that they can't even accomplish their agenda that their constituents want them to. And by the way, this is not a Republican phenomenon. We've had a lot of high profile examples of Republican celebrities running and winning, especially at the executive level. But it goes for political amateurs on the Democratic side too. This House of Representatives is the least politically experienced we've ever had. And that shows in a lot of ways.
1: You know, in in a representative government like ours, I mean, I think most of us would say, but we want a representation of the broadest possible aspect of who America is does it help or hurt if we do pick out a few celebrities and put them in? After all, they're part of America's fabric and landscape as well.
5: You know, Ronald Reagan is a great example, and I'll go back to when he was governor of uh, California instead of when he ran for president and and would have been an experienced politician at that point. Um, Whether you listen to the advice of advisors is a huge uh, variable and how successful you can be. And a lot of people didn't know that Reagan wrote letters to Eisenhower. He thought deeply about political issues and policy, and he did listen to advisors. Same with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He had advisors from both sides of the aisle.
1: Ronald Reagan is, I think, a great example of somebody who was a celebrity before he became a political figure.
6: Mm-hmm. He
1: did listen to advisors, but there were times when he Put aside all the advice he was getting, and a great moment of that is when, in the speech at the Brandenburg Gate, when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, every single advisor on his own staff, on the State Department staff, everyone told him to take that line out, and they all crossed it out. He kept putting it back in. It became one of the most important moments of the entire Cold War, and perhaps the first shot to kill it. So sometimes, doesn't it? help if a person takes the advice but then ignores it and does what their instincts tell them to do?
5: I think instincts are the perfect word for it. I mean, Ronald Reagan had great political instincts. Donald Trump has great political instincts in a lot of cases. But I think the trouble is uh, when you're really ideological and, uh, you know, or rather when you You don't have a strong sense of a core policy belief. That can be really good. And so the example of Reagan, and and he was invested in that part of the world and the policy there deeply, Um, but also Donald Trump with criminal justice reform. That's not something most people associate with a Republican platform, but because he's not so ideological, he was open to that issue, and it was very successful for him. But on the other end, we do want sometimes uh, politicians, either Republicans or Democrats, to dig into the policy to understand it uh, and to adhere to some of the party norms. Those guidelines are there for a reason. And so it can be a big boon to the administration, but it can also be a thorn in their side.
1: You know, Dr. Wright, I think your book is a very, very fascinating insight. And, uh, you know, it's not written so academically that the average reader can't enjoy it and get the the message of it. But the research behind it is very valuable to somebody interested in politics. I I, I would just uh, sort of say that, you know, some people have gone from celebrity uh, into politics. Then there are people like me went from politics and ended up in showbiz. So I guess it can go either way. (laughs) (laughs)
7: that's true
5: and you know I think you probably have better entertainment instincts than a lot of uh, politicians out there, but a lot of people don't have both. And so I think the ability to communicate clearly with people is something sometimes we do find in politicians, but it's rare. And it tends to be something that's requisite for the entertainment industry. If If you don't have the ability to get a big crowd and get people interested in you and get them to believe in your message, then it's very tough to survive and show business but that skill set can really help in politics too. So you're right, it absolutely goes both ways.
1: It's been great having you, Dr. Lauren A. Wright. And Keith Bilbrey is standing by to tell us where we can get Dr. Wright's eye-opening book. Keith, tell us about it.
0: Star Power, American Democracy in the Age of Celebrity Candidate is available right now on Amazon and at other booksellers. You can also learn more and read an excerpt from it at LaurenAWright.com. And follow Dr. Wright on social media at Dr. Lauren A. Wright. Next, from pop music's Wilson Phillips fame, it's China Phillips Baldwin. More Huckabee in 60 seconds.
1: welcome back to our coronavirus edition of Huckabee, where we are safely distanced from each other and from everybody else. Much to your pleasure, I'm sure. Well, recently, our comedian in residence, Rick Roberts, decided to hit the highways and byways of Nashville, try to find out just how people are adapting to social distancing. Rick himself came up with a very innovative way to interview with a lot more than 10 feet of distance. Let's watch.
6: This is Rick Roberts here in Hendersonville, Tennessee finding out how much people know about the COVID-19 virus. And to make sure we're using safe social distancing when we distribute the toilet paper roll, we've implemented the poll rule. Let's fix that first. Social distancing is what Mitt Romney did when he approached the impeachment vote. True or false?
0: (laughs) (laughs) False. <laughs>
6: oh. A weak positive is how most men respond to an invitation to visit the mother-in-law.
7: False. <laughs> oh my God! True.
6: True. <laughs> Flatten the curve is a term that Jenny Craig's using for their new weight loss campaign. Uh-huh. False. False. <laughs> I, I'm sure. Uh-huh. True. <laughs> a compromised immune system is when Democrats and Republicans agree on a health care policy. All right, good job. Go ahead and grab the roll.
7: We get a roll. (laughs) All
6: right. As it turns out, most people know a lot about the COVID-19 virus. But to learn more, go to the CDC website.
1: Boy, Rick was really on a roll there. Hey, thanks, Rick, for helping us smile. And by the way, if you want to enjoy more of his funny stuff, just head to rickroberts.com. My next guest is a singer, songwriter, and actress. She was born and raised in a musical family by her celebrity parents, John and Michelle Phillips, of the Mamas and the Papas. She's a member of the famous vocal pop group Wilson Phillips, which she formed with childhood friends Carney and Wendy Wilson, the daughters of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Wilson Phillips sold over 10 million records with hit songs, release me you're in love and their breakout single hold on joining us from her home in Southern California China Phillips Baldwin China it is a big thrill for us to have you here thanks for joining us
8: uh, thank you for having me so much it's such an honor
1: you've had uh, quite a, an incredible engaging career, I think, with Wilson Phillips. And uh, you guys were just explosive with so many songs, Grammy Awards, all sorts of stuff. You've done some reunions as well. Uh, do you still get together with, uh, with the girls and do music from time to time?
8: We certainly do. We love singing together. We usually do about one or two shows a month. And it's just one of our greatest joys is to sing harmony together and be on stage together. Cause you know, we grew up together. So there's a real bond there too.
1: You know, a lot of times uh, when you hear people with those kind of harmonies, it's because they're all in the same family. And uh, even though two of the ladies in the band are sisters, there is an incredible blend in the harmony there that I guess maybe you grew up together. So you learn the vocal sounds of each other, but, Uh, It's one of the reasons I think people so love the music of Wilson Phillips, Uh, the uniqueness, the quality, the power of it. Uh, Thanks for sharing it with us through all these years, and I hope you keep at it.
8: Oh, you're so sweet to say that. Thank you so much. Carney and Wendy taught me how to sing harmony. I knew nothing about harmony before before we all started singing together, so I thank them for that.
1: I want to talk about uh, the incredible YouTube channel you've got called California Preaching. A lot of people may That's not right. even be aware that, in addition to uh, singing with Wilson Phillips, um, you became a believer, you have strong faith, and I watched one of uh, your videos just today that was so encouraging for people going through this uh, coronavirus. How did you get started and uh, think of the idea of California preaching?
8: Well, I realized that if I wanted to walk on water, I had to get out of the boat, Number one. And I realized that you know Jesus died in public for me, right? So why should I mm. live out my faith in private? And I felt like I had a platform, so I should definitely use it. And that's why I started the channel because I wanted to really, instead of leading people to the cross, I want to love people to the cross. And so the whole the whole program is about loving and uh, spreading. The word that God is love. Love is not something God does. It's who God is. So I wanted to be able to share that with the world.
1: You know, I also know that you and your husband, he's also an actor, Billy Baldwin. You guys uh, put together an orphanage just across the border in Tijuana. Uh, That's pretty powerful. Tell me about that. And and what motivated you to say, we're going to do something for kids that can never pay us back?
8: Okay, the truth, I was getting my nails done with one of my nieces, and I said, I really want to do something to make a difference. And I speak fluent Spanish, so I thought, you know, if I were ever to invest my time and love and money into an orphanage, it would definitely be a Spanish-speaking orphanage because I want to be able to communicate with the children. And so I thought, okay, what's the closest place to California. And I realized, well, Tijuana is really close and I can just take a train ride there. So we looked online at some orphanages in Tijuana and found Los Angelitos Orphanage. And it's run by a wonderful man named Ed Perry. And we've been down there several times, my husband and I, Billy, and we have helped to raise funds for the orphanage and it's a beautiful, beautiful place now and it's housing about 40 to 45 children and it's been a real a real you know labor of love.
1: Well, it's a beautiful thing that you're doing. Hey, before we uh, cut away and, and listen to some music with you, I understand you took uh, one of your big hits hold on and you came up with some new lyrics to kind of help us through the coronavirus. Can you do it for us?
8: Oh my gosh! Okay, so my friends put me up to this challenge, okay? I i don't know. I'm, I'm gonna read it for you. Okay, here it goes. Someday somebody's gonna come up with a vaccine for COVID-19. Until then, my friend, gotta just stay home and deal with the quarantine. Italy, even Spain, United States, the whole world's in this race. Gotta hold on. For lots more days. Gotta hold on to make that change. Wash your hands and pray. And hold
7: on for lots more days.
1: (laughs) I love it. It's beautiful. And you know what? That may uh, revive the song for a new platinum. (laughs) It very well could. (laughs) China, thanks for uh, visiting with us. We're going to love listening to the music, which is in itself, quite an electronic feat. So we want to tell our audience to be sure and subscribe and visit to China's YouTube channel. It's really powerful and very encouraging. You're going to love it. It's called California Preaching. So go to her YouTube channel, follow her also on Instagram at China underscore Phillips. Now coming up, China is going to sing her number one hit from 1990, the old version. Hold on, don't go away. Well, stick around because at the end of tonight's show, I've got a personal thought I want to share with you. But first, to perform with Trey Corley in the Music City Connection in Nashville and from her home in California, through the magic and miracle of modern technology and the incredible talents of our own Trey Corley, here is China Phillips Baldwin.
8: I would like to dedicate this song to all of the healthcare workers that are on the front lines working with COVID-19.
7: God bless you. And ¡Gracias!
1: Beautiful song by China Phillips Baldwin. Well, a week from now, we're going to be celebrating Easter to commemorate the resurrection of Christ. One of the best Easter sermons I ever heard was titled, It's Friday, but don't worry, because Sunday is coming. It was a reminder that on the day Jesus was crucified, everything was dark, evil, it appeared hopeless. Those closest to Jesus were in fear for their own lives. They felt that all they had devoted themselves to for three years died on that cross. They saw their master and their hopes and faith buried in a borrowed tomb. That was Friday. But then came Sunday. It was the day that three women went to the tomb to honor a man who was dead. Instead, they were the first to know that what they had witnessed on Friday wasn't the last chapter. Now, we all have a lot of Fridays in our lives. Bad doctor reports, financial problems, just finding enough money to pay the rent or buy groceries. Maybe it's a sick child, a broken relationship. Yes, it's Friday, but don't worry, because Sunday's coming. The coronavirus and what it's done to us individually and as a nation is truly a Friday. And even if you've never been afflicted with a virus, you have been affected by a complete shutdown of our economy, our culture, even our recreational activities. It's definitely Friday, but don't worry, because Sunday's coming. As we observe Palm Sunday this weekend, just remember that the same crowd who screamed, crucify him, was shouting his praise and screaming, Hosanna, just the week before. Let's not get lost in our Fridays, because Sunday is coming. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. From all of us here at The Huckabee Show, thanks for joining us. Stay safe, and remember, Sunday is coming.